Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, March the 23rd, 2023. Welcome to the 1,389th episode of Keen On. I sometimes wonder, and my wife often asks me, why I waste my time doing these shows. It's a great question. I'm barely paid anything. It takes up all my time. It's a question of what motivates me or what incentivizes me. My guest today is an expert on incentives, on why we do things, particularly in the economic realm. He's the co-author of a best-selling book, The Y-Axis, Hidden Motives and the Undiscovered Economics of Everyday Life. And he has a new book out today or yesterday, Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work. So he's the guy to ask about why we do things. He's joining us from San Diego in California, where he is a professor of economics or behavioral economics, Uri Knizi. Uh, Uri I'm not going to ask you why I do things because I'm an odd sort of fellow, but uh, why do you do things? Why did you write this uh, new book, uh, Mixed Signals? How would you explain it in the context of your behavioral uh, economic theories? Uh, what motivated you? What incentivized you about this book? It's great to be here. Well, you know, midlife crisis hit people in different ways. I'm I'm 55, so I'm over it, but I could, you know, buy a red sport car, but I'm not into sports car. I could jump from, that's not what, I wanted to write a book that will take what I do in my research. And in my research, I talk with 200 people and really translate it such that everyone will be able to, to appreciate it. And hopefully I, I, I was successful. And what motivated me is just, I was bored. I looked for something interesting to do. I guess that that might be a good answer for yourself as well. Yeah, probably is. I'll, I'll have to go with that. So what motivated you is is what in, incentivized you. Are those the same things? Were you incentivized by bringing the world wisdom or simply because you were bored and you needed something to do? It's not just one thing. So economists think about incentives and motivation as the same thing. And psychologists... Uh, look at it in a very different way, but uh, I'm I was interested in incentives since I remember myself. Why do people do what they do? What's the hidden motives that sometimes they themselves don't know that they have, right? So it's not just that they need to discover what makes you do what you do. Like you said, maybe you you yourself might not even know why you're doing it. And I was always fascinated by this, trying to reveal these kind of things. And later on, when I studied economics, I found out that in economics. People are treated like numbers. There are mathematical equations. They take away all the fun out of it. And I was interested more in the behavioral aspect of it. That's why I became a behavioral economist. And I'm trying to, to use the tools that we're using, like experiments, using data, to figure out why people do what they do, how we can change it, how we can help you in what you want to achieve. And what is it that makes you do what you do? Uri, you're a star behavioral economist. You're considered in the same light as uh, guys like uh, 
Dan Ariely. Um, my understanding of behavioral economics, and this is relying on Wikipedia, which I rely on for everything, is that um, your analysis of why people do things varies uh, from those of classical economic theory. Classical economic theory suggests that we do things purely for material reasons. Is that a fair summary of behavioral economics? It's more complicated than that. So you put the picture of Dan. Dan is a good friend. Dan looks at uh, where people are irrational. So we have a rational model and how people deviate from this, in what cases they make mistakes, if you like. My approach is very different. I study incentives. And um, with incentives, I'm a strong believer that incentives really work. So we really follow the incentives. It's just that we often don't know how, we're going to, how they're going to work. So I might pay you to do something and that will make you do it less often than before right? Demotivate you. Incentives work. We don't know how they work. And instead of saying people are wrong or right, like Dan and before him, Kahneman and Tversky and people like that did, I'm not interested in this kind of, of uh, behavior. I'm interested in what motivates you without putting judgment on whether it's right or wrong. Well, you mentioned uh, Daniel Kahneman, the sort of the father or one of the fathers of behavioral economics. I wonder why so, so many behavioral economists, including yourself, came out of Israel? Is there a reason? Is it simply because Kahneman and Tversky were Israeli and they generated a lot of interest in Israel itself? I think that that's partly true. So there are um, lots of psychologists that I think were trained by them or by their students. For me, it's a bit different because uh, Kahneman, you know, he, he won the Nobel Prize in economics. Uh, if you ask him, he does not call himself an economist. He calls himself a behavioral scientist. So for economists, he had, I, of course, learned a lot from what he did, and I, I, I used it, but I wouldn't say that I'm coming from the same tradition necessarily. So I think that a lot of it is coming from the fact that uh, if you grew up in Israel, you had to learn how to improvise. You had to do things that, that are different than in a more developed country, and the way... Um, much of the world is, but also just just a chance. We also had uh, a couple of years ago Cass Sunstein on the show, another very influential behavioral economist. He's the co-author of a book called Nudge, a huge uh, a huge uh, bestseller. He co-authored it with Cass uh, with Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics. It always seems to me, uh, Uri, that. And I'm not sure whether you would include yourself within the 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 Sunstein Thaler Nudge Economics School, but it has enormous policy implications because if you can figure out how to nudge people, whether they stop smoking or, or stop committing crimes or stop beating their wives, it's enormously important for society. Is that fair? And and do you see yourself at, in terms of your theory of incentives as part of this nudge school of behavioral economists? So it's clearly uh, hugely influential. I think that uh, to some degree it's overstating what they can do with nudges. So many people started to use it and it's very easy. If you are, if you'll ask me to to come and do some consulting for you. In one case, I'll tell you, look, we can do that, but I don't think it will work. Changing behavior is much harder. Getting people to stop smoking is much harder than it seems. Or if I come and tell you, sure, I just changed something in the environment and you'll get whatever you want. 
you're going to hire the, the latter person, not the first one. So I think that there is an exaggeration in the claims of what we are able to achieve with nudges. Having said that, I think it's really important uh, discussion and really important to try and design the world in a way that actually works behaviorally. I'm not part of this. So incentives are very different. Incentives are not nudges. Incentives actually change the environment that you have. So if I, if I incentivize something, that's not a nudge. That's, that's a different kind of thing. It may be a different kind of thing, but it ultimately results in changing people's behavior. Is that fair? I mean, is that the yes. basic argument in mixed signals that if you can figure out how to incentives really work, you can change how people behave? In that sense, you're absolutely right. It's very similar. So the goal of getting people to exercise more, for example, they would have a set of things that, um, that they call nudges. I would say, for example, let's pay you to go to the gym for a month, give you incentives to go to the gym for a month. And then hopefully after a month, you'll get used to it because all of us, I don't know about you, but most of us had periods in our life in which we exercised a lot. And then it was easy to go again to the gym and periods in our life in which we sat on the couch and just, you know, change uh, movies on Netflix. And the way actually to move from this couch to the to exercise could be using incentives. I can pay you. So we had a, an experiment, Gary Charnas and I had an experiment in which we paid our students $100 to go to the gym for a month. And if you pay our student $100, they'll do almost anything. And then when we stopped paying them, we saw that they were more likely to continue to go to the gym than people in the control group. So we are trying to use incentive to change behavior. The nudge way of looking at it would be uh, to give you more information about the gym and maybe tell you how to get there easily and so on. So it's slightly different, but exact, exactly the same goals in this case. So let, let's take your gym example. You think you, you pay a, a student, you said, Kids these days do almost anything for $100. So your kids that you see, uh, San Diego, you pay them $100, they show up at the gym. After a month, they become familiar with it, maybe even in some ways addicted to the exercise or the experience. If you take that $100 away, do they still continue to go? That's exactly the point. Yes. So after a month, when we stopped paying them, we stopped giving them the incentives, they continue to go. So there was some kind of habit formation that we saw. So the, we got you to go to the gym. We, we moved you from the couch to the gym um, environment. And then after we stopped paying you, you kept doing it. And is, that, is that what you mean by mixed signals? So you, 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 go to, you continue to go to the gym after a month. For the first month, you go because you were paid $100. And the second month, you go because you're you're maybe in some way or other addicted or familiar with the experience of going to the gym. Is that why uh, the signals are mixed? So in this case, the signals could, you can get very different signals from the fact that I'm paying you. So one worry would be that you'll ask yourself, why is, why is this professor paying me to go to the gym? It must be really bad, right? So that could be the signal. So there could be different signals there. The premise of the book is that incentives always send signals. So it's not just that I'm paying you $100, but I'm also telling you, for example, it's very important to go to the gym, or I'm telling you you should go to the gym only if I pay you because it's not fun, it's not good. There are signals that I send to you. And if you understand the signals, you can get what you want. Examples of mixed signals are, for example, if I tell you, you work for me and I tell you, I really care about quality. Really, really pay attention. You know, it could be customer service or 
whatever it is, but then I pay you based on quantity. So I incentivize you to do quantity and then, then you get a mixed signal because I tell you that quality is important, but if I incentivize uh, quantity, you're going to just produce more. Another example is team versus individual. I can tell you that cooperating with others is really important. You should work with your coworkers, mentor new employees, everything is good. But if I give you incentives just based on individual success, you're not going to do that, right? So again, I send you a mixed signal. I tell you one thing, but then the incentive tells you something else. I can tell you to be creative, but if, I, if I'm going to punish you later on for failure, you will not be creative because being creative means that you increase the variance. And if you increase the variance, you'll have more like you'll be more likely to well, get hold on. Uh, so come back to this idea of creativity. So you say you tell me you pay me to be creative or you give me the signals to be creative. And I am creative. And then you what do you mean? You punish me. You spank me. What does that mean? Punish mm -hmm. Spanking is uh, out of the what we can do in the lab. You're not allowed to do that in the universities. That's for sure, Uri, is it? Yeah. Where are the good old days, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so punishing would be if you fail, I can fire you. You might not get the bonus. You might not be promoted. That's the kind of punishment that you can think. So imagine that you start a project. You have a great idea. You start a project that is very different than what we did before. And after a while, you discover that it doesn't work, which happens a lot. That's the meaning of increasing the variance, right? You're taking more risks. Then what we should do as a company, we should say, what happened? Why did it happen? If it happened because you stayed home and slept until noon and didn't put any attention to details, then I should punish you. But if it happened because you tried it, it was a good idea, it just didn't work, then I should learn from this for the future how not to, to make the same mistake in the past, maybe learn something new because I could change my intuition based on this, but I should definitely not punish you for failing because then you will not take any more creative ideas to, will not try to make them work because why would you? It doesn't, isn't fear a central reality when it comes to the workplace? People work hard when they fear they're gonna lose their job. So. I don't know if this works with your theory of incentives, but if people at an office think they're going to get fired unless they're creative, they'll be creative, whether or not it ultimately punishes them or not. I mean, that's the nature of life. You, some people win, some people lose. I don't think so. So the people that will do whatever they can in order not to get fired will do the minimum. And those are not the people that you want. You can think about me, you know, me and my friends. I have a tenure at my university. They cannot fire me. I'll have to do something really bad to get fired. If I'll stop working, they will not fire me. I'm still interested in going to work, right? And I think that many of us are like that. So there is this tension between psychologists and economists. So psychologists tells you that you go to work because you need fulfillment. You need to understand, uh, be motivated yourself. And economists say, no, you just do it for money. And those two are very extreme points of looking at it. And I think that what you mentioned was closer to the economist. That's not why I go to work. I go to work because I need the money, of course, but I also want, let's go back, that goes back to where we started. Why are you doing this podcast? And why did I publish the book? Because I also need to have interest. I, I want to have fulfillment. I want, I want to, to accomplish something. So the combination is important. And if you have the combination, then I will put more than I have to. I will try to be better than that. If not, I'll just do whatever is needed in order not to get fired. 
without caring at all, and they will not be a good employee. Your interpretation seems, your, or your book, uh, this book, Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work, suggests that we humans are like signal boxes, that we, we, we take in signals and we behave accordingly. Um, are we always looking for signals, Uri? And, and where do we find them? Aren't they often invented or imagined? There's a lot of paranoia in the world today, a lot of conspiracy theory. I often find that, at least in terms of the people around me, my sense is that most people's signals are wrong, especially when it comes to other people and the behavior of other people and the motivations of other people. So we get very incomplete picture of the world. We get some bites of information and our brain completes the, the picture to a story, right? So we see, I learned something about you, about your behavior, about your incentives, and they build a story. The point is that the incentive could really change the story that you're telling. And that's, that's something important to understand, right? So it's true that we have lots of conspiracy theories out there, but that's, that's one, one story that you can tell about the world. Right? And if you're into this, you will hear about a 30-year-old person that died in his sleep. And you'll say, oh, Pfizer, right? Because that's the story you believe in. And you can have uh, another person that will think about something else. The point is that the incentives that, that enter the picture are really completing the story. So in the Pfizer example, the incentive is, well, Pfizer made tens of billions of dollars out of that. Hence, they are evil. Right. And that's that's one type of story. But if you can control the, the incentives, you can really control the story in many cases. Let me give you a couple of examples, if I may. So Coca-Cola, the CEO of Coca-Cola had a great idea. There is a thermometer in the vending machine. And he said, look, on a cold day, we charge regularly. We charge people a dollar. Let's increase the price to dollar fifty on a hot day. That's Econ 101. That's what you do. When you buy airline tickets, right, flight tickets, that's that's what they do. When you buy hotels, the demand is stronger. You're going to pay more. People, of course, got upset. Why is he taking advantage of us that when it's a hot day and he charges us more? And what he should have done, which is mathematically exactly the same in terms of the incentives, he should have said the regular price is $1.50. And on a cold day, I'm going to give you 50 cents discount. That's a very different story. Now, no one is going to object to this. No one is going to say, oh, the CEO is a bad person. Right? Because now it's, uh, it's like, uh, you're nice to me. A month ago, uh, AMC Theaters had a similar idea. They said, the CEO sent the message on Twitter, I think, saying, look, because of inflation, we have to charge more. So what we're going to do, we're going to have differential prices for seats in the theater. And people got upset by this. So not enough, it's, isn't it enough that we are paying so much now for the good seats, we'll have to pay even more. And the right thing for the CEO would have been to say, look, because of inflation, we have labor costs are going up, everything is going up, we must increase our prices. We're sorry for this. However, because we care about you, we're going to discount some of the seats. So if you, if you are willing to sit on the first row or on the sides, you're going to pay the old price. Exactly the same prices at the ticket box very different uh, interpretation by people. Are you, but then you, you, you seem to be talking the same language as orthodox economics. You're suggesting that people are ultimately motivated by price or at least the signal of price. If they think they're getting a good deal, they'll buy it. If, if they think they're being ripped off, they won't. 
So it's not the, the classical economics would not distinguish between the two cases that I mentioned about uh, Coca-Cola or AMC. So in Coca-Cola, once, you know, the price, an economist would write it as the price, price on a cold day is $1, the price on a hot day is $1.50. No, it's the reverse, Uri, because you're not, it's not going to be more expensive when it's hot. It's more expensive when it's cold. No, no, it's more expensive when it's hot. Why? Coca-Cola. You want to drink soda when it's hot, no? Oh, I thought you were talking about the cola. You're talking about the weather. <laughs> Yeah, 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 no, no, no. The, the I weather. thought you were saying, like, you know, you yeah, get... sorry, 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 yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We got, our, we got our signals mixed on yes, Coca Cola. You see, you see. No, I was talking about the outside weather. Yeah, no, I take your point. On a cold okay. day, on a cold day, I'm willing to pay less than on a hot day. But isn't that no? I mean, we're all rational, or we try to be rational. I, I do a lot of traveling. I go to a lot of hotels. I understand that certain times hotels are more expensive or airline tickets are more expensive because there's higher demand. That's just the nature of things. What's wrong with that? Absolutely. But still, even with that, you can get upset by some changes. If, if you feel that people are doing it to take advantage of you, you'll feel upset. So imagine umbrellas. Imagine that uh, we talked about it uh, this year in San Diego. We had lots of rain. Usually we don't use our umbrella, but now we do. So imagine that you're stuck in the middle of a shopping center and you need to buy an umbrella because it rains outside. And now, instead of $5, they charge you $20 for it just because it rains outside. No, no, about you, I would be upset by that, right? And because you're telling the story, I'm learning about you something from, the, from your pricing. In the case of AMC, in the case of the Coca-Cola, the case of the umbrella, I learned that you, you're willing to take advantage of me when you can. And that's not yeah. something that I like. Well, you so know what not... they say about Southern California, Yuri, it never rains, it pours. Um, let, let's talk about some more interesting, rather than whether or not people buy more expensive Coca-Cola. You you were involved. That's in, interesting. Come on. Well, it's interesting if you're Coca-Cola. I don't think it's very interesting if you're anyone else, unless you're a behavioral economist. You you were involved in a controversial genital mutilation study about the, the Maasai of Kenya. Talk about that and how your theories of uh, uh, economics, behavioral economics, and perhaps of incentives play out in, in an area which is enormously controversial. It's not a reflection of you. It's just a very controversial subject. So um, first of all, there is a part of the book that is dedicated to this. I The controversial comes partly from narrow-minded people, partly from people who really are really concerned and partly from idiots. So um, <laughs> Female genital mutilation is one of the worst things that you can think about. So all the there is a lot of right, rightly um, right concerns about rich Americans or Europeans that go to Africa and try to change the culture. That's clearly not a great thing that happens. In many, we know about many, many problems with that, starting not today, starting hundreds of years ago. That's not the case over here. Gentle. Female genital mutilation, people who understand what they're talking about uh, say that it's worse than rape. So imagine that in a culture there would be a ra rape, it was okay to rape 10 year old girls. We wouldn't say that that's okay, that's part of their culture. And the same is true about female genital mutilation. We cannot stand uh, on the side and say, well, that's part of their culture. Well, it's not. Girls die because of this, they cannot enjoy sex, they have problems giving birth, um, they have uh, problems keeping their urine. 
lots of health, serious health problems apart from the mental trauma. We, that, that's not, uh, it's not, it shouldn't be controversial. There are things that I'm willing to, to discuss as controversial. That's not one of them. So that's one of it. The second one is the misunderstanding and the disgust from using incentives in many cases. So I have a quiet life, but when I talk with teachers, educators, they are, and I try to mention incentives, they are really upset by that. And that belongs to the same school of people that, that are worried about incentives in general. So in education, they say very much uh, correctly that we need to teach kids to, we need to get kids to enjoy reading, for example. And you cannot achieve it with incentives. That's true. In many cases, there are many things that we don't know how to achieve with incentives. There are still things that we can. So if uh, you have a teenager, an annoying teenager that doesn't study for the SAT, and you're able to bribe them to sit down and study, that could have a huge impact on the future. And you don't need them to enjoy studying for the SAT. You just need them to be successful in this one test. But they're against it. And the same is true for many sociologists and anthropologists. Now, they really don't understand incentives. So the, one of the typical uh, examples that you, uh, comments that you hear is, we try incentives and it didn't work. And for me, it's like saying, I went to a bad Japanese restaurant and my conclusion is that Japanese food is bad. That's just the wrong conclusion. You went to a bad Japanese restaurant, next time go to a good one. Same is true for incentives. The fact that someone tried incentives and they didn't work doesn't mean that incentives don't work. Incentives no, work. Is, is the resistance, you think, particularly amongst educators, that uh, they believe that we're more noble than um, being paid, for example, to read? I know with my kids, um, I'm not sure if I'm using incentives, but I've always told them that I will pay for any book they, they want to read. Right. And uh, my son in particular takes advantage of that and he enjoys reading. So I'm not paying him to read. Is that a, a form of incentives? Does that underline your, your theory? How does that work? Yes. So I would call it removal of barriers. So your son, which I guess doesn't have a lot of money, if he had to pay for every book that say $30 per book, he would, you know, he would have to give up something else, something that could be substantial for him. The fact that you you're willing to provide free books to him is definitely an incentive that you're willing to, that it's important for you. And it's a, a strong signal that you care about it because you don't offer him cigarettes for free. You don't offer him many other things for free, but books you say, look, I really, I think that books are important. I'm willing to sponsor this. So it, a, it removes the barrier that you might have, not, not having enough money. And B, uh, you send a signal that it's important for you. So is, is this a moral signal? Does he want to make, I mean, he generally doesn't want to make you very happy, but does children sometimes, do you think, do they get moral signals, which if they're presented in a sufficiently subtle or sophisticated way, they'll, so to speak, buy? I think that uh, I have three kids that are, all over the teenager, well, one is 19, but uh, the young one. Um, I think that they might uh, create the impression that they don't care about what we say, but I think that they're looking very carefully to see what we say. Sometimes they're going to do just the opposite of what they think we want them to do, because that's, that's part of growing up, right? But uh, I think that they are looking at the signals that we're saying, that we're sending, for example, with our incentives. And in this case, you know, Incentive is buying books, but it could be and could be many other things and definitely not just money. 
So they can, if you're smoking and you're telling your kid that they shouldn't, your kids that they shouldn't smoke, you're sending a mixed signal, right? So they're watching you and they're learning from you. If you're drinking too much, so what, what, sorry, when it comes to the, the mixed signal when it's smoking, does that mean that the kid is likely to end up smoking? Not necessarily. I don't, you know, it's probably not, uh, it's probably going to listen to this, to, to observing you smoking more than your warnings. So I think that, yes, I think that if you're smoking, there is a higher chance that your kid will smoke. It could, there's also a good chance that your kid will never, will be so anti-smoking that, uh, um, that will actually achieve that part because he wants to be so different than you. But they are watching you and they're getting signals from what you're saying and from your actions. Don't we have a higher sensitivity, or the people I seem to know, especially my children, have a higher sensitivity about hypocrisy. So if they are getting a mixed signal, if they have a parent, for example, who talks endlessly about behaving in a certain way and he or she behaves in the reverse way, they seem to be particularly horrified. Does do, do mixed signals sometimes bring out our our moral outrage? Here's an example. Uh, I start the book with it. So when my son, the guy who's 19 now, when he turned three, um, he started communicating with us, which is great. You know, it's it's I, I love this period. And then he also started lying because that's what people do. That's what kids do. And we told him you shouldn't lie. Only bad people lie. That was good. A couple of months after his birthday, we went to Disney World, and I saw that uh, on the entrance, the cashier, it said the under three-year-old, it's free. Over three-year-old, it's $117. I went and say, I told the cashier that he's almost three. Now, you know, he was almost three just from the wrong direction. Uh, we went in, everything was good, and half an hour later, he pulled my shirt and said, Daddy, Daddy, you told me that only bad people lie, and you just did. Right. So he noticed that at the age of three, he noticed that I said one thing, but when I had the $117 incentives, I chose to lie. And then another half an hour later, we got to another attraction where the minimum age was four. And my son, Ron, had no problem going there and say, well, I'm four. Right. So that's what he learned. Basically, he learned that when it helps you, it's fine to lie, despite of the fact that I tried to convince him. Otherwise, he looked at my action, not at what I said. I mentioned that behavioral e economics uh, seems to be particularly popular, rich in, uh, in Israel. Israel, as I don't need to tell you, is in a state of enormous conflict, unrest. Um, 57% headline today from the Jerusalem Post say that only 57% of paratrooper reservists are showing up for duty because of their opposition to a new judicial law. Can, um, would you use some of your incentives to try to fix the country of your birth? How would it, how could you use it to, to try to address a country as, as divided on so many levels historically as Israel? So um, it's, it's very complicated. It's extremely, extremely sad. No one, so we knew that it's coming. We knew that the demographic is such that the ultra-Orthodox people have 10 kids and the secular people have two or three kids. We knew where it goes with democracy, but we thought that it's going to take much longer until this happens. And, uh, it's extremely sad. Understanding what's going on could help. So, for example, why is Bibi doing what he's doing? To a great extent, you can trace it back to the fact that he's on trial. So his incentives is to weaken the 
the courts, right? So if you understand the incentives of people, you can really understand what they are doing this. And by the way, we talked about the Middle East in general, incentives when it comes in the, in the form of religious beliefs are very hard to change. So think about the suicide bombers. Their incentives are very different than what will motivate you or me. They're, they're, according to them, God told them to go and blow themselves up in the middle of the street. Right? And then they'll get all the rewards that are out there. When people have such, uh, such deep beliefs, like religious beliefs, it's very hard to, to change their behavior or motivate them with incentives. However, we do see, for example, with kids, in Israel, there is a very strong uh, subsidy for having more kids. And we saw that in some period, 20 years ago, when they stopped giving these subsidies, there was a very fast and strong reaction to this. More of the ultra-Orthodox went to work, actually, and they had less kids. So they do react to some kind of incentives. If you understand what motivates people, you can maybe tackle some of the things. But clearly the problem in Israel now is... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to think of Israel or other, shall we say, mixed societies in the context of incentives. When you have a country like Israel divided between ultra-Orthodox people and secular people who often don't even believe in the idea of a God, um, it, it makes public policy really tricky, doesn't it? It does, it does. And you want democracy, you want to live in democracy, but um, some people are so much against the, the the views are so contradicting that it's it's very hard. We see it also in the U.S. It's not that the U.S. is doing that well in terms of uh, harmony between people, right? So uh, we have a large portion of this country that believe that Trump was actually elected in 2020. There are um, large portion who thinks that Trump should be executed. And those people are not talking with each other, right? And... Um, that's that's not going. That's not becoming uh, better. I think that it's just becoming worse with uh, with time now, with social media, with fake news, with everything that we have. Uh, it's not Israel didn't invent it, but maybe in Israel it just uh, boiled faster than we expected. Yeah, it's interesting. We did a show earlier today with Carol Graham, who's written a book about the death of hope in America, suggesting that white people are much more well, working class white people in America have much less faith in the system than African-Americans or Hispanics because African-Americans and Hispanics have worked within a system that's biased against them. They understand that the system doesn't always work, but it can do, whereas white Americans have simply given up. So there's always a cultural element here, isn't there? There's no question. And clearly the, the U.S. is an example until that, in which until very recently there was very strong explicit discrimination so um, 60 years ago, a black person couldn't sit in the front of the bus in some places of this country and many, many other things. I just listened to Chris Rock, a special on Netflix yesterday, and he talks about how his mother had to go to the veter veterinarian in order to have dental work on her because she couldn't go to a white dentist. So there is, the, the, the country starts from a very bad, uh, as a very bad starting point. But I think that the people, especially the, the white collar people, middle class, the, not blue-collar people, white blue-collar people, they're rightly angry about what's going on. And that's, to a great extent, the, the blame of economists. Economists understood it since. 
because many of these jobs, if you worked in a car factory or something like that, many of these jobs were either outsourced and mostly replaced by technology. And the economy said, ah, no problem, we'll just retrain these people. Now, if you have common sense, if you understand, no one can take me, I'm 55 now, no one will be able to take me and get me to learn how to, to write code, for example, like, like they did with these people. You just can't. You know, at 55, there are things that I know how to do and things that I will never learn how to do. And the economist said, oh, no problem. It's just we're going to retrain it. So it completely ignored the fact that a large portion of the, of the population really suffered from all these things and didn't think about ways. So there were, there were ways to, to compensate these people. Right. So if you take a job, if someone used to make 50, 80 dollars an hour working in a car manufacturing and now he lost his job. You cannot retrain him to find something nearly as good, but you can subsidize the rest of his life. And this could be done by the gains that are made by introducing technology, by outsourcing the, the jobs. And I think that uh, we as a society did a very poor job with that. It's a, a very important message, Uri. And of course, as we are teetering on the edge of our new radically disruptive AI age of chat GPT, it's not just factory workers who are going to get replaced. It's lawyers and yep. academics and writers and people like you and I. So it's an important thing to bear in mind. Finally, um, you mentioned uh, Twitter and social media a couple of times. I went to your Twitter page and I was really struck by the fact that you have 1,783 followers, so you've almost, you have almost as many followers as I've done podcasts, but you're not following anybody. What yeah. incentive would anyone have to follow you if you don't follow people back, Uri? Well, it's a very important Twitter day, Twitter week for me. So I, I, when my previous book came out, I, someone created Twitter for me, and I tweeted once. And now... Um, Two days ago, I tweeted the second time in my life, 10 years later. So that's my... Uh... Excited to share. Well, are you going sh- to follow me? I will. Okay, I will follow you. I don't know how yeah, to do not that. Gonna follow I... You don't even know how to follow people, do you? I'll ask my son how to do that. I'm... Um... It's, it's, it's an interesting question. So first of all, um, I'm afraid. So I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. So telling the wrong joke or making the the wrong comments. Too many of my friends were burned this way. Some of them because they are just racists. eh? If you are racist, then keep it to yourself. I don't want to hear about it. I don't think that I'm a racist, but uh, still, that's one thing. And another another issue is that I don't really understand how it works. So I understand the technical aspects of it. I don't really understand why why are people so interested in taking picture of their food and posting it on Instagram, right? I just, I'm the wrong generation, I guess. I, I guess I don't understand it. So I will follow you on Twitter. 